Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right, good morning. How are we doing today? It's good to hear a few of you talk back to me. i excited to be up here today. Uh, for all of you who are here this week who didn't either go on an overseas trip, we have some people in Israel, or our deer hunting. Did you know that um, uh, this weekend ends up, it's the one non-church event that shows up on the Baptist calendar every year. Uh, and it's a reminder to pastors, don't plan 
a major event this weekend because people are going to be deer hunting. Well, if you were, hopefully you got, got yours and you're here this morning because you had a successful hunt, but we're glad you're here today and uh, welcome. I want to give you one quick heads up announcement. I'm excited. Uh, I love dating my wife. I think one of the most important things a married couple can do is to keep their dating life active. You know, sometimes you get married and then you're like, well, we used to date. And now we just hang out at our house and it gets kind of stale. And dating is a big thing. And so we got a date night planned for you this weekend. Uh, you can find information in your green folder about that. But we're going to do a murder mystery night. But we need you to register uh, to make sure that we can get you a character in the whole event. And so make sure you take time today to do that uh, for you and your spouse. Get ready and come Friday night. We've got a meal planned. We're going to have a good time. Uh, be a part of that this weekend. Um, you know, sometimes leadership in the church is all about making sure you know where you're going. And sometimes you think you know where you're going and you can't quite get there. And uh, that, that just erodes all kinds of confidence and trust. For example, uh, there was a point in time in our church we started going to Charleston, Missouri. We went there a lot of years, but one of the first years we went down there, uh, we, we had planned a fun day. So what, what you do is in the middle of the week on a mission trip, you say, what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment and we're going to go have fun, like get the kids and the families involved in something that's a little more entertaining because you're working so hard all week long. And so we decided we were going to go to this water park that was in Poplar Bluff. So we're in Charleston, Missouri doing missions and we we're going to travel to Poplar Bluff. It's a little over an hour away. And this is way back. Like I had a Model 1 smartphone and Google Maps was a really new idea on this smartphone. And so what I did is I looked online and I looked at my little smartphone and I got directions. We printed them off and I said, listen, everybody just follow me, follow my directions. It will get us there. And so we take off and we're driving uh, from Charleston to Poplar Bluff and I'm following, you know, the sweet little voice is telling me where to go. And it says, get off at this exit, turn right here, turn left here. And we just kind of followed around until we, it gets us in the middle of this like neighborhood in, in, you know, maybe not the best part of town. And <laughs> like, where are we going here? And then it tells us, like, I'm seeing we're coming to the end. It tells me to turn right. And I go up the street, this little street. It it's almost feels like an alley. And, and we get to the spot where there's a vacant lot on my lot right, a house right in front of me. And it says, you have arrived at your destination. And I'm looking at the vacant lot going, I don't think this is a water park. And I'm kind of freaking out. Well, then I, I, all of a sudden I see all the cars that are following me stop and everybody's getting out of their car and they're just looking at me going. And, and one member of our church, God bless her, who's still a member, took out her, her, her beach towel and just laid it out right there on the side of the road and said, I'm fine with this. We can just stay here. Uh, Needless to say, uh, I no longer trusted for a while Google Maps, and my church no longer trusted me as a leader to get them where we were supposed to go. Well, uh, sometimes uh, leaders can make those kind of mistakes, but we actually live in a culture where the idea of authority in the church, leadership is under a lot of scrutiny. We have a lot of people in, in our world who are really kind of questioning the idea, is it a good idea to have pastors and people who have any kind of authority. Is authority any, a good idea? Uh, and, and there's a lot of people who are literally just rejecting authority. They're rejecting the idea of the institutional church and, and no longer believe that even the idea of having somebody who stands in front of people opening the scripture preaching or trying to lead the church like this is a good idea. And, and hear me as I say this, I understand. It's easy to look at this voice in our culture that says, we no longer want to believe in spiritual authorities and get angry about it. 
But the truth of the matter is, a large part of the reason this is happening is because, at least in our culture and context at this point in time, the church in America, I'm, I'm talking about all denominations, all, you know, all Christians, we don't have a great track record. Every, every faith tribe has ended up with some kind of scandal around the issue of sexual abuse. And the scandal is usually twofold. You, you, you first of all end up with the fact that there are monsters who are stepping into places where they're preaching and teaching the Bible and sometimes very gifted, but monsters who use their place of authority to manipulate women and to hurt children. And, and then what happens is that rather than dealing with it biblically, you find churches who just can't believe their guy would do that and there are records, like records of these people just perpetuating this kind of stuff while systems within the church and at some of the seminaries and places kept protecting the, the villain and marginalizing and wounding the victims. It's no wonder people look at us and go, well, wait a minute. Is this really a good idea? We, we, we have stories all over the place of pastors and leaders who end up with moral failures, pastors and leaders who will stand up and sometimes the loudest screamer about the moral ills in our culture will be the one who secretly is having an alternate lifestyle who has a stream of, of women that they've committed adultery with. And then you add to that the fact that there is also in the last several years a line of, of pastors and leaders who've been removed from their position because they became spiritual bullies. They believed that allegiance to their ministry was what was most important, that they were the autocratic prophet of God, and you had to follow me, and if you don't follow me, you're not following God. And, and what we find is them wounding and hurting people, discarding anybody who, who isn't no longer of use to them. And, and there are some of the most, like, the, the most, um, most listened to podcast in church history is about one of these stories. And so what's happening is people are looking at going, well, wait a minute, the church is a mess. The leaders are awful. Why should I go to church? I, I really believe that the best approach is for me just to go do my Christian faith by myself. I don't need the church. I don't need leaders. I don't need pastors. I think they're all charlatans. We shouldn't believe them. And, and right now there's a, like a lot of people in, who are deconstructing their faith. They're leaving the church. I understand it and I weep for it. It breaks my heart. At the same time, when you go to the scriptures, the scriptures are not ambivalent that God's design for his people is to have shepherds who lead his people for him. This is what went on in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what comes is you hear both the call to have godly leaders and incredible warnings to those leaders of judgment if they don't lead his flock well. This passage that we have this morning is one of the, the, the beautiful moments in all of Scripture is one of the most tender, heartfelt, beautiful, sweet moments in the whole New Testament, in the whole Scripture. We have a tearful Paul who at the end of the story is on his knees, just like I can see them snot crying while they're trying to pray, right? 
as, as he is saying goodbye for the last time to this group of people, this band of brothers that has risen up to lead this church in Ephesus, and he is loving them. He has called the Ephesian elders together, and he is leading them. So, see, as we study, uh, as we're reading Acts, what we found is that the story uh, of the second half of this book ends up following this, this missionary, the gospel globetrotter, the Apostle Paul, this man who first hated the church, but now is planting churches all over the place. And most of his ministry has been going from town to town, city to city, preaching Christ. He goes to the synagogue, and then he, he ends up in the secular marketplace. And so he preaches to religious Jewish people and irreligious secular people, Greeks and, and, and Roman citizens who live in the culture. And as he preaches, people from both groups believe in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, as their Savior, as their hope. And when these people believe, now they are a community of faith, they are brought together to plant a new church. But in most of the cities, what happens is Paul preaches, and then by the time the church is being formed and shaped, he's getting run out of town by somebody. Somebody's beating him up, somebody's mad at him, somebody's actually threatening him and the church. And, and for the sake of his own ministry and his own calling, and for the good of the local church, he often at that point in time, he will leave but what, what, what's kind of hidden in the pages is that he has this entourage of people who are traveling with him, people like Titus and Timothy and uh, Silas and Barnabas. And I mean, he's always got a crew who's hanging out with them. And, and it's subtle in the text, but what happens is he's often leaving those people behind. And what are they doing? They're staying in this local church, pouring into the lives of some of the leaders for a season, developing their character, discipling them, developing their theology, so that when they leave the town, the church is healthy with its own indigenous leaders, leadership. People who are from that city, who will stay in that city and lead that church. And what Paul is doing is he is leaving behind not only the gospel and the presence, he is leaving behind a community of faith in every city that is going to maintain the witness and be the visible body of Jesus in a city. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we are. We're a community of faith of people whose lives have been transformed by the beauty of the gospel who are in this city, for this city, for the purpose of the gospel. And so this is what Paul is doing, but twice in two cities, the Lord compels him to stay. The first one is in Corinth on the first missionary journey, or second missionary journey, he stays in Corinth for uh, almost two years and preaches and teaches there. He comes back to them more than once. And the city that's in Greece that is a really broken, crazy, sexualized city, Paul plants the church, and he ends up being one of the elders for a season of life in that church. He's not just the apostle and missionary. He stays, and he pours into the lives of other leaders. And when he finally leaves there, he has discipled and led these people. And then Paul starts his third missionary journey. We have a, the map up here for you to see. We've kind of been, you know, having fun doing a, a, you know, following Paul's journeys as he's gone through Acts. And he started over here in Antioch where Paul at one point in time was an elder at Antioch and probably still is considered a leader. But Antioch church sent out their best, which is a beautiful point in the story. Rather than hoarding their best leader for themselves, they send him and fund him and send him on these journeys. And on his third journey, he ends up going through this area that's called Asia, but he comes to the city of Ephesus, which is down here, okay? And when he gets to the city of Ephesus that is down here, he had visited there briefly during his second journey, and then some leaders he left behind planted the church. 
Then about, probably about three years later, he comes back, and when Paul gets here, they have a healthy community of faith that is growing, but he starts preaching and proclaiming, synagogue and in the marketplace. And the gospel takes root, and there is the, one of the closest things we'll see in the New Testament to a great awakening or a revival. So that the gospel not only reaches Ephesus, the city that is a seaport, that is the, like the fourth or fifth largest city in the Roman Empire. It is the, the, the Roman capital, but it is also the economic capital of this area that we call Asia at the time, that is in modern day Turkey. He, 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 uh, the success is so great that it doesn't just reach Ephesus. Luke tells us, the author of Acts tells us that the gospel reached all of Asia while Paul is here. That this whole region is being reached by people who are hearing the gospel in Ephesus and then going and planting other churches and preaching the gospel after they hear from Paul. And he stays here for a period of three years and it's full, filled with success. There's signs, there's miracles, there's amazing things that are happening. And, and I can imagine Paul at one point in time maybe even said to himself, I could spend my life here. But the Holy Spirit compelled him with another need. Actually, two other needs. The first need was the fact that down here in Jerusalem, this area right here in, in, in Israel, the capital city, which I referenced, we have some people who are from our church who are there this week, but, but the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the Christians who are living in this area are suffering mightily because there has been a famine and the Jewish culture is already pushing Christians out. Every week I read a... Uh, I get an email on Friday that has stories of the persecuted church. People who are living out the implications of their faith, they're loving Jesus, but the mere fact of loving Jesus and going to church, they have family members who are throwing them out in the streets, they're losing homes, they're, 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 they're seeing their loved ones arrested and killed. And this was going on in Jerusalem. At the same time, there's a famine, and so marginalized people in a place where there's no food, they are suffering massively. And Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to, to, um, to call out to all of the churches he's ministered to, none of these people will know anybody in Jerusalem, but they consider them their brothers and sisters. And he tells them, listen, I want you to give an offering. We will collect this offering. And when we collect this offering, we're, I'm going to take it to Jerusalem with at least one representative from your church who's going to travel with me. And we're going to go faithfully, like, go, go encourage these brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it is our collective offering is going to help them survive. And he feels like the Spirit of God has told him, Paul, you have to go. You can't hand this off to other people. He's actually encouraged. Listen, when you get there, it's going to go bad. And Paul's response is, but the Spirit has told me I must go. And so what he does is he leaves Ephesus and he goes the other direction, but he goes on this tour where he goes to all these churches that he has planted, that he has been a part of. He goes to all these churches to collect these offerings. He sent word before. In fact, the book of 2 Corinthians is a fundraising letter encouraging that church to get some of their stuff together. But the middle part of the book is a call for these churches to week after week after week be generous with their giving so that when he arrives, he can collect this offering and he can take it back to the brothers and sisters who are hurting in a town that they've never been to. And so he goes on this quick tour where he hits these these, all these cities. He ends up back in this and makes a trip back 
And now he is going to leave from here. And, and uh, Kirk preached on this whole journey a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but he is going to leave here and he's headed to Jerusalem. So this is his last voyage across here. And what he's told us in the text is, I know when I get there, it, it's going to go, it's going to be hard. But he also tells us, Luke tells us, and Paul also tells us in the, the New Testament book of Romans, that if he believes he's going to get here, whatever happens here, he's going to hop on another boat, and he's going to go to Rome. He is kind of done reaching these areas because his primary mission is to go where the gospel has not been named, to preach Christ among unreached peoples. And so he's going to go to Rome. This is his plan. We'll talk more about this in, in, after Christmas, but his plan is to end up in Rome and have Rome be the new Antioch, the new sending church, so he can go to Spain where nobody's ever gone with the gospel. That's the core of his ministry. But the Lord allowed him to have three beautiful, sweet years in one local church in Ephesus where he discipled people, he loved people, he poured his life. They became key to him. He saw these men who were the elders of the church raised up. And so what happens is he's traveling home, but he doesn't go to Ephesus. He's afraid if he gets stuck in Ephesus, he's going to never get out of there. There's going to be, you know, 5,000 people who want to hug his neck and say goodbye. So he gets a little, little port town called Miletus over here. And when he gets to the little port town of Miletus, he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church and says, come here, come over so I can say goodbye. And what we have in this text is Paul's farewell to his brothers in arms, the men that he, he probably led many of them to Christ. They probably came day after day after day to the hall of Tyrannus when he was preaching and teaching. He began to see them grow in their character and eventually they become appointed as the elders and they become the key leaders of the local church there in Ephesus. And now he is serving alongside of them pastoring people, loving the sheep, caring for the congregation, doing the work of ministry, striving with them. And, and so Paul has this last moment, and what he does is he talks about his ministry, and then he challenges them in their ministry. And everything that Paul says, I did this, the challenges, and now I have to leave here, so you, you have to continue this on. This is your calling. It is a passage that is rich in emotion, it is the only speech or sermon in the book of Acts where the audience is all believers. Acts has sermon after sermon, moment after moment, where Paul and Peter and other people have preached. Philip has preached. But this is the only one where, where the, the whole audience is a group of believers, and there's a deep, rich challenge, but this deeply emotional moment where you see the heart of this leader. We planted Genesis Church 16 years ago. We've been around for a long time, you know. It's kind of weird because, you know, most churches who are our age have their own building and they're kind of an established church. And there's something about meeting in a school where you still, like I still think there's people in our community who think we're transient. Like, who knows if we're going to stick. So you have a building, you're not really a church. But we are, like the Lord has been so good to us. But early in our story, we were trying to figure out what it looked like to have elders, leaders, pastors in the church. And I'll come back to this in a minute, but elders and pastors, same, same role, okay? And so um, when, when Genesis began, I was the only elder. We had three families who planted the church with me, though. And one of the things we did really early in, in Genesis is we did some hard theological work. I did a lot of writing. And as I did writing, I would sit down with the, these, these people who were who, the, the first three families, and then very quickly after that, we started building this core team of people. So we ended up with about, about 
30 to 40 adults who were, a lot of them living here in the city. Several of them came with us from uh, uh, the church that sent us out. And we were doing the hard work of saying, okay, this is what the New Testament says about the gospel. Here's what the leadership, here's, let, let's define the church. Let's make sure we understand what the church is and the mission of the church. And then we started talking about what it looked like to have leaders. And I wrote this, it's about a 12 page document. And uh, I forgot to do this, but I will post it again on Koinonia. So those of you who wanna see it, 12 page document that, that was a theological document that said, this is what leadership at Genesis is gonna look like. And then I worked through it with a few of these key families and a few of these men who were part of this journey. And they were giving me critiques back and forth. Well, I think you ought to change this and you ought to write this and let's look at this. And what they didn't know is that I had these guys in mind to be elders. And, and so eventually, once we kind of had the document in place, I went to them and asked them to prayerfully consider being elders. And two of the guys looked at me and it was two of these guys looked right at me and said, if I'd have known you were gonna turn around and ask me to do this, there's no way I'd have been part of writing this document. But I asked them to pray because I saw in these men what the New Testament tells us these men ought to be. And, and, and Genesis Church has been an elder-led, member-informed church from day one. What that means is that there has been a band of men who we feel the Lord has called. And y'all, I love these men. I've spent a lot of time. We have had a lot of tearful moments as we've wept and hurt with you in the church. We are not perfect. But they have my back and I have theirs, but they also have your back. And, and I really believe that Genesis is a beautiful, rich, healthy leadership culture. That what's happened underneath the elders with the leadership of the elders is we've developed leaders who work in all kinds of places and we have people serving deacon roles and they are just serving and, and, and up to their armpits and just loving the, the church and serving it. And, and the Lord has blessed and multiplied and, and we love each other, we love the church. There is a beauty to what is going on here. And the reason I, I get excited about it is because I really do believe that as best as we can, what's going on here is that we are, are seeing a faithful honoring of scripture show up in the leadership culture of our church. And, and, and so look at what Paul says as he greets these men. Look at real quick at verse 17 and then at verse 28 because he is laying the groundwork for everything he says as he just pours his heart. Like this is a hard passage to preach because it's not linear. It's like just... I was with you. I love you. I'm for you. The work we did together was this. Now, y'all need to be doing this, this, and this. And by the way, I never shrunk back. And I, like, it's just this heartfelt moment that is rich of a man who is leaving them to continue a different ministry, being sent out again, just pouring his heart out. They are weeping and crying with him. But in verse 17, it says, now from Eletus, he sent to the Ephesus called the elders. The elders. There's a defined group of people that he is calling to, of the church who came to him. Now look down at verse 27. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourself. So he's talking to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained with his own blood. What we see here is in one passage we see these three titles and roles that are the key leaders in the local church. And these three titles and roles show up in multiple places. 
Sometimes they are side by side, where you see these three titles that define specific roles for these leaders. You see these three titles side by side. Other places you'll see one here and one here. But in all these cases, there is a general use of these terms that speaks to anybody in the church who's doing these. But in some cases, these titles are used for these specific leaders that God has placed in the church and given a level of spiritual authority. But there is great care for how they are to use that. And what we can do is we can run away from it and say, you know what? We no longer believe in spiritual authorities. What you end up in, in that as a church, there's chaos. Nobody can ever stand on stage and open a scripture and say, with the authority of Christ, this is what we proclaim to you. But we must also fight to make sure that the people who serve in these roles represent God's call and not just the most gifted person in the room. And so this is what's happening here. Here's the three roles. First of all, is the word elder. It's a Greek word that is uh, presbyterios. Uh, it is uh, not that you're impressed with Greek words, but you can hear language there. All of a sudden, these are the Presbyterians, right? They are elder rule. And, and, and it comes from this Greek word, but elders is a reference to people who are put in leadership because they have a defined level of spiritual maturity. Um, a lot of times, it's just reference to older people, the gray hairs, right? I'm one of those now, right? But it is, there's a lot of younger people. Now, there's a warning. Don't uh, make somebody an elder who was really young in the faith. But we see Timothy, when he is a really young man, made to be the, one of the elders of the church back here in Ephesus later in the story. And, and so it's not always a reference to age, but it is a reference to say that these are people who have this level of spiritual maturity, that people can look up to them, they can see the character of Christ in them. There is maturity in them, the elders. Uh, we use that title quite a bit, elders, but we're also talking about overseers. Verse 28 says that he has made you overseers, and this is a Greek word, episkopos. So you hear the episcopalian. Now what happened is early in church history, you had an argument, some people said that these people are actually higher up the food chain. That like you have a church who has elders in every church, but higher up the food, food chain, there are bishops. They don't get that from the New Testament. The New Testament uses these words like in this text interchangeably. They are elders who are overseers. The idea of an overseer, this word actually comes from the Greek marketplace of government systems where somebody would come and their, their position was to be like a city manager. They would come into a city and they were to oversee people. They were to care for structures and systems. They were to kind of lead in, in, in casting a level of vision for the city, making sure that there, is, there are things that are being taken care of in the city. Um, and so this word gets applied now in the New Testament church to these leaders. It says, listen, you are overseers. You have a, a group of people and Christ has given you leadership. You are to, to lead them. Lovingly lead them. And then the third word is the word pastor. Now, it's hidden in your, Greek, your English Bible here. But multiple times in the text, he talks about the flock of God. And in verse 28, it says to care for the sheep. That word care that was translated by ESV translators, the word care is the uh, Greek word that is referencing a shepherd. It's the word we get pastor from. When you call somebody your pastor, what you're saying is you are a shepherd of sheep. And, and a shepherd, first of all, understands that the sheep are not my own, that, that Christ is the true shepherd of his sheep. But, but what we end up with is, is shepherds. And, and, 
And so while elders reference the spiritual maturity and overseers are referenced to leading and overseeing systems and structures and people, shepherd means that, that you love and lead and care for the sheep. A good shepherd smells like the sheep. And as we apply this, like this metaphor in the New Testament, what you end up with is men who are both sheep and shepherds. But they are called under the good shepherd to care for and love and serve and be, be there for the sheep and, and to be present in the lives of the sheep. And so all the three of these words are used in this text. All three of these words show up multiple times. It is not three different roles. It is three, three different uh, aspects of, of one leadership position that is in the New Testament. And what we see, there's a few things we see as we, we flesh this out in the Bible. The first thing we see is that anywhere you go and you find a local church, what you find is a plurality of elders, okay? I grew up at a church that had pastor CEO. You normally had one guy, he was like the staff manager, so he oversaw the staff, and he was like the, the head leader. He was the person who was to rule and govern the church, and he ran things, and then that pastor CEO kind of was the head guy, and he was the pastor of the church. And you might have other people you called like the youth pastor and the children's pastor, but you knew who the main guy was. And you guys may think that's the way Genesis runs because I'm the one who's up here all the time. It is not. We see in the New Testament the beauty of a plurality of men who rule and lead and govern the church together. We, we are able to compensate for each other's weaknesses. We are able to hold each other accountable and call each other out when we see areas of sin and struggle in our lives. And so, so uh, what you see in the New Testament is a plurality of men who are serving together in the church, who are protecting the sheep, even from sometimes some of their own that rise up and become wolves, which is talked about in the text. A plurality of men. Second, character, and this is really important, character is way, way, way more important than gifts when finding the right people. Now, now sometimes... In some of these church settings, you had men who were like what, what you believed when you saw their character and what was truly going on were really different. But in a lot of places, what happened is people who had incredible gifts, man, they were apex leaders. They were unbelievable communicators. They could preach the wallpaper off the wall. They may have even been faithful to the text. And we heard them preach, and we made them leaders and pastors. And then what happened is about three years into their ministry, you'd see that while, while they may have gathered a following, there was a whole bunch of people in the church frustrated. He was starting to get pushback, and, and his way of dealing with pushback in the church was to go be a pastor of another church and start the cycle over again. And eventually, some of these people began, they, they grew huge churches and believed their own hype, and you end up with these single leaders who have unbelievable gifts but no character. Well, what you find is 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1 lays out the qualifications of an elder. If you're going to have somebody be an elder in your church, and they are all issues of character. And what's really interesting is that all the issues of character there are things that look like Jesus and are the call for every Christian. And, and nowhere is that character perfection. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be striving to be perfect as Christ is perfect. But let me give you a heads up. You ain't going to get there. All right? You are not going to arrive. 
the, the issue in the Christian life is progress, not perfection. Right? Progress. Am I becoming a little more like Jesus than I was yesterday and a little more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today? Is there progress in the way I'm growing in the holiness and the character of my life? And what, what Jesus knows is that the model to follow is Jesus. But for us to understand what Jesus looks like in real skin on, he, God, God is going to raise up people in the church who look and, 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 and act and respond like Jesus. And they are sheep. They need Christ in their life to lead them, yet they are also shepherds who become models and pictures of what that should look like. And this was the plan. And so way too many times what we did is we put people who were super gifted, but we couldn't see their character. We laid hands on them. And I will confess to you that my church, my home church, laid hands on me when I was 21 years old, and they should not have. But I grew up there, and their mindset was, well, we're going to send you off to pastor. You're going to seminary, so you must be the guy. And nobody really tested my character. And in the previous couple years, I had had some doubts and some struggles in my own life that if anybody would have fleshed that out, they would have said, you know, you might go be on staff at a church for a while and start growing in this, but you are not there yet. I'm thankful for men who poured in my life who helped me become the sort of leader that I I feel like God has called me to be, and I hope that I am that before you. I know your elders are, man. I feel the weight of my weakness all the time, but I see the beauty of who these men are, and I am so thankful for them. And so what happens here is that Paul is having this conversation, and, and so, so, I'm sorry, I hit two, I didn't hit three. Let me hit third one. So, so leadership, plurality of elders Character is most important, and the mantra for leaders then should be, follow me as I follow Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what Paul kind of says here. Follow me as I follow Jesus. It's not just follow me, and it's not don't follow me. There is a sense in which elders are supposed to say, listen, watch my life, watch my character, follow the way I do this thing. But, but as an elder, that means the first thing I am as a flawed human being I should, we, like your elders should be the lead repenters. Y'all, we're a hot mess, okay? So I'm not up here going, man, I got it all together and therefore I should be leading the church. But what should happen is you should be able to see visible growth in the life of, of your leaders and that visible growth shows up because we are quick to repent, quick to respond, quick to apologize, quick to feel the weight of our own need for the gospel. And we're following Jesus as best we can and then we can look at you and say, listen, Follow me as I follow Jesus. It's exactly what Paul says. Paul starts this whole section out. He says, you, you saw for the last three years how I lived among you. And, and, and the way I, I handled the message of Christ and lived my own life before you. Now, everything he says here is rooted in then the way I did it. It's your turn. I'm leaving here. Now, you have this same message. And so what happens in this whole passage is you see two things side by side. And these are the two things that that will happen, whether we're talking about pastors or leaders or we're talking about somebody who leads Genesis Kids, we're talking about somebody who leads the women's ministry. I mean, I don't care who we're talking about. What you see is the gospel taking root in the lives of leaders with two things side by side. And the first thing is this unbelievable, deep passion and love for the people that you are leading. 
the, the, the weight of the tears. Paul did not walk in and go, man, I am the apostle. Y'all better get in line and follow me and raise the flag and just hold out his, his like leadership and authority as an apostle. What he did is he poured his life into this church so that as he's leaving, it is unbelievably painful. And for us, incredibly beautiful. Like, I, I, I know what this looks like. I've joked earlier, this is a group of people who are on the, their knees and they are snot crying. This is, Lord, we just are so... Yeah, I mean, they're praying over Paul and you can feel the weight as they say, man, what really broke us as Paul looked at us and said, listen, I know what the Spirit has of me. I'm, I'm not coming back here, boys. I'm, this is the last time you guys will ever see me. And the weight of that, like I've known pastors that if they said, this is the last time you'll ever see me, people were like, whoo, thank you, Jesus, right? And I stand before you. Listen, some of you, your story is that I got wounded in a church by a bad leader. Let me tell you something. Me too. Me too. But, but I will tell you that what happens is you're not going to get wounded by a leader who so deeply loves Jesus and deeply loves the people that he is serving that he would lay his life down for them, just like Jesus did. This, this deep, beautiful love that shows up in tenderness and care and compassion. This, this love for a people and for the leaders who lead the people. Sometimes I, I wish you could have a little window into the first hour and a half of our elders meetings. We meet once a month because we're, they're busy guys. And so what we do is one mammoth meeting a month instead of multiple meetings like a staff meeting every week or something like that because, you know, they just, the time. But they, they slot this time out. We, we get together on Saturday, uh, Saturday morning a month. In the first hour and a half, two things are going on. The first thing is that we study theology together. We are always reading something from a, a book, Systematic Theology, and wrestling deeply to make sure that our, our doctrine is true and that we are being faithful to who God is and who the Scripture is. And the outcome of any good doctrine, like if you're studying doctrine and that doctrine does not create in you an affection for Jesus, you're missing the point of studying doctrine. Like if you, if you end up at the Grand Canyon and all you can pay attention to is the different layers of soil and you leave going, wow, that was cool. I know more about the Grand Canyon. And your awe of the Grand Canyon was not ignited. Something's going wrong. And if you open any doctrinal study and the outcome is not, oh my gosh, this God I worship is true and is glorious and amazing. You're missing the point. And so we end up with these great discussions and sometimes a little bit of pushing back and but then the second thing we do is we spend time and we take down all the things that we can think of that we can pray for the church. And sometimes with tears, we are praying over this body. And, and the men that I serve with love y'all. And so that's the first thing is, is this beautiful love that shows up in text. The second thing is that because of that love, what happens is the weight of actually leading God's people becomes real. See, if I don't love you, if I just want you to follow me because I want to be awesome and I want a big church so I will be known, then I will not bear the weight of leading you. 
But if, if we authentically love you, then when you're hurting and you're struggling and our church is hurting and things are going on that are hard and, and, and when we have to wrestle with decisions that we know will affect the life and the faith of people and that kind of stuff, the weight will become authentic. And I will tell you that there are seasons in this church that much like Paul raises here for these Ephesian elders, there are seasons in this church where carrying that weight of, of not our own stuff, of stuff of the people in our church and around us is authentic and it is heavy and it is hard. And it is the weight that Christ has put on. That's where authority is. Authority is not that I get to tell you what to do. It's that I get to, we get to step in and bear the weight of sheep who are hurting and struggling and being alongside of a church that is filled with people who are trying to figure this Christ thing out. And we just feel the weight of the struggle. Because life is really, like, if, if you came into Christianity thinking that this was going to make your life easier, you were lied to, right? It's hard. Yet, the church is this beautiful place. And so what happens is you have this deep love, leaders who have this deep love for God's people, and they feel the weight of the brokenness in the world and their lives and the struggle that people go through and the hurts in the church. And you start putting that together, and what you are doing is you're laying the foundation for the building of a beautiful community. Not just good leadership. You're building the weight of a beautiful community where we can weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. We can feel the intimacy and the glory of Jesus as, as love in the church becomes authentic. And that's what's missing in so many churches. You end up with, with and, and I don't want it to be missing here. Maybe it's missing for you guys here. Maybe you're like, your, your whole feeling is, man, at, at this church, he's talking about this. I don't feel any of this. I hope that's not true, but it could be. But this is what this text draws us to. There's this incredible weight. And, and, and what happens, the text tells us a few things, a weight uh, that, that elders will, will feel. Um, I'm going to just bullet point these because I will, like there's whole things I'd love to preach out, but let me just tell you some of the weights that show up in the text that your elders feel. First one is the weight of stewardship. The first thing we find out in this text, the, the clearest thing we find out in this text is in verse 28 where Jesus says that, that, that these elders are to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. Um, when, when, when you plant the church, you start the church as kind of like you're the guy and everybody's around. And you start, you know, you hear this like, this is my church. One of the first things that I had to wrestle with is this is not my church. It never is, never was, and never will be. You are the church that Christ obtained with his own blood. That, that the weight is that I'm taking care of something that's not mine at all. And, and this is where it can go sideways, the leadership. A second weight that, that um, elders will care, carries the weight of testifying. Uh, verses like 19 through 21, verses 25 through 26, Paul talks about the fact that he has been faithful to the gospel and to the scriptures, his whole ministry, that he testified to anybody and everybody he could, that he went from, from uh, the public place and from house to house, we see a picture of both uh, the public gathering and like community groups and the importance of both sizes, but the faithfulness of, of his proclamation and, the, and, and Christ being made much of. And he ends up with this, this illustration that's down in verses 25 and 26 where he says, listen, I am not guilty of the blood of any of you. It's actually an illustration from the Old Testament where Ezekiel talks about this watchman on the wall. Here's this guy, he's on the wall and he has one job. His job is to pay attention so that if there is a, a 
army that is coming off. So he's on this high tower, and if there's an army coming from the distance, his job at that moment is to blow the trumpet to give a warning to uh, the, the nation so that the people inside the walls can get themselves ready and the people who are outside the walls can flee into the city and get inside the walls so that they will have then the walls closed, the gates closed, and they will be protected. And he says, listen, if the watchman on the wall sees a foreign army coming and he turns around and starts checking his iPhone again and starts making sure that you know, his Twitter feed is going well and he doesn't blow the trumpet, these people are going to die. Their guilt is still their own. Death is a result of our sin. Yet, his blood will be, the blood, their blood will be on the watchman's hands. Yet, if he sees coming and he blows the trumpet, and the people out in the fields harvesting the crops and who are hanging out doing things outside and they're taking hikes, if they ignore the trumpet, then their blood is on their own hands. And this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I've been faithful to testify of the whole counsel of God, even the hard stuff, so that nobody who's been part of this church can stand up and say, I didn't know. The blood's not on my hands, Paul says. Listen, that's, that's a weight of, I'd love to, to week after week just pute, like tell all of our pastors and leaders who preach, make it cute and fun. Yet, we have a commission, a weight of being faithful to the text of Scripture. The weight of, we see the weight of, uh, uh, thirdly, the weight of costly obedience. Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus, and now he's saying, and here's where this obedience has taken me. It may cost me my life. Anything the Lord calls me to do, I will do it. He, has, he ends the text by talking about his generosity, and he's been an example of somebody who worked very hard, he didn't put the weight on the people to take care of his needs. And then at the end of the time, they knew that he was the first one when somebody who was in poverty and hurting, he was the first one who would throw money towards that and make sure those people were cared for. Um, he's been an example, and his obedience has been uh, the beautiful part of, of the picture of the gospel that they have been following. We also see the, the, the weight of wolf hunting. You heard that right, wolf hunting. He gives a clear warning to these elders that there are going to be wolves. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there was a face post three days ago in Eureka from the Arbors. Anybody live in the Arbors? I live right up the hill and through the woods of the Arbors, and the face post said this. You might want to watch your pets, because I just saw a mountain lion with a calico cat in its mouth walking through the Arbors. Wow. That sounds fun, right? I mean, if you know a mountain lion's walking around, you're probably not going to, you know, just run around. And, and it, like, there's all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we got to pay attention to this. This is a real thing. And Paul says, listen, there are false teachers and people whose lives are broken who will be in the church. And next thing you know, the people who, who kind of look like they're wolves in sheep's, clo sheep's clothing, right? And, and there is a sense in which the call of the elders is to protect the flock from the wolves. This is hard. But it is part of the cause, part of the weight. And then there's the, the weight of loving sheep, of just being intentionally involved in the lives of people who are in our flock, of, of being there. Now, you're sitting here the whole sermon long evaluating, going, wait a minute, I'm not an elder. Why is it, what is this about me? Well, the first thing is that, that it is your call to lovingly pray over your elders and to follow them where they're godly and where they're not, to hold them accountable. 
and to ask the Lord to raise up people in this church who will lead like that. The last thing I want to do is say, and this is who we are. I see the beauty of this with the men I serve, but man, we're so short-sighted and blindsided. We miss all kinds of things. We need Jesus, and Jesus is at the center of this. But our call is to be a community of faith that makes disciples, and leadership matters. It does matter. We don't want to just throw everything out and say, well, we no longer believe in these sort of people leading. But the flip side of this is we don't want to to just say, well, because we have leaders in place, we have to follow them. There is this beautiful tension between the the call of the church to make disciples and the type of leaders. And I I saw this when my my son, Andy, as I I share this, we'll have the band come up. We're going to sing here in a minute, worship Jesus who gave his life for his church. But my son, Andy, when he was about two years old, I realized that something was going on that started to freak me out, and I saw this in all of my kids in different ways. But this was my son, Andy. My son, Andy, was about two years old. He loved giving speeches. From the time he was two, he would take his children's storybook Bible, and he would love to give speeches. And he would stand up in front of any group of people we'd allow him to get in front of, and he would give speeches. He was always good. He could memorize everything, literally memorize anything he heard or read. Kind of freaked us out because we thought it, too, he was already reading because he would, he would open his Jesus, little Jesus Bible, and he would literally quote it word for word, verbatim. But he wasn't reading, he had memorized it. But he started, like, he loved to get in front of people and give speeches. And this is what I started watching that I went, oh, snap, that's me. Because he would stand, and every time he would give a speech, he would do this, all right? You ready? You, some of you have been around long enough, you know where this is going, okay? His speech looked like this. He would do this and do this while he was giving a speech, <laughs> right? I was like, oh, dang, he is mini-me. You know, some of you are like, just for the love of God, grab that pulpit, that thing, and stand behind it still. I'm getting vertigo, right? I mean, I can't stand still, and sometimes I just get in this goofy rocking motion, and I'm not even aware, but my two-year-old was doing it. I was like, oh my gosh, I am reproducing myself into my kids. About three years into Genesis, when we were just starting to shape what elders look like, it scared the fire out of me because I began to see who I was being reproduced in this church. And there is a point where that is going to be inevitable. But what I hope is that the places where what your elders, like where we see the elders are reproduced in this church is the places where they are most like Jesus and not where they want to, we want to push our own gifts and personality. Now, I'm not saying we do that. Because in our discipleship, people will hear what we say, but we will reproduce who we are. Mom and dad, that is true in your family. Your kids will hear what you say, but you will reproduce who you are. Your values, your, 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 the things that you think are most important are going to show up in your kids. And in the church, these sort of leaders matter. Paul was that guy. The Ephesian elders, we hope were, and we hope in this church that this church is a place where it's safe to explore faith because the leaders really do love Jesus and represent that well. But ultimately, the goal is for you to see the one who gave his life for the church, who bought the church with his blood. And we're going to sing to him and celebrate him. And if you're here today and you haven't ever trusted Jesus to begin with and you are skeptical of leadership, like if this whole talk freaked you out, please come have a conversation with us. Because what we want to do is not point you to our leaders. We want to point you to Jesus, who is 
the perfect one, right? So I'm going to pray, I'm going to get off the stage, and we're going to sing songs of worship to Christ and give thanks for places where we've had leaders who led us to Jesus to begin with. Lord, we love you, praise you for this today. I'm thankful for the places where I've had godly leaders who led me deeply to Christ. And I just pray this morning that you will shape our lives. Um, and know that the, that the way you shape our lives, the way you come to us, is often through people who are around us. And so, Lord, let us be faithful here to love you deeply and pass that on to anybody we can. In your name I pray. Amen.